0: Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues, and that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow. As they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. This is the second part of our dance around the crack up by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and this is. Show. In terms of con- composition, is it a three-part mm. structure?
1: Hmm, interesting. Yeah,
0: because yes, this was is delivered in, in such a manner, and that would be an important, um, you know, attribute. I mean, you
1: could argue that there's a 3 three-part structure to the blues, but I certainly, uh, you know, none of us are blues scholars enough to argue very persuasively. Well, it's a three-part about chord structure.
0: Yeah, but that's, not, that's internal. Um, mm. Yeah, and it's also interesting that Williams wrote much of Patterson in a three-part line um, mm. that he mm. evolved for that project, but he had all sorts of things to say about it. Mm. But, I mean, you know, as, the, as a macro structure, it's delivered in three parts. Um, you know, partially, no doubt, motivated by money. You know,
1: because it's three yeah.
0: stories, you know, and he's trying to drum up Cash.
1: Or was he thinking of Dante, yeah. uh, which is, you know, the Divine Comedy is in three parts. I mean, maybe the first part is hell. the Inferno, the second part is the uh, Purgatorio, and the third part is uh, the Paradiso yeah. in some yeah. sense. might be pushing this thesis a <laughs> yeah. so farther than it can go. I was struck, too, that I think, I think, I may stand corrected, which I often am, but I think the only text, external text, that's quoted in that paraphrase is uh, the Bible, which would be another blues technique, drawing from the good book hmm. in lyrical composition. He does um, quote from the Gospel according to Matthew, the very famous parable about um, about salt. I believe it's Matthew five thirteen. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? That's a pretty what, good question.
0: What does that mean? I've
1: never understood that phrase. I think I learned it from uh, the, the musical Godspell, and, uh, which I love. But I've never understood what that means. I don't think I understand it either. But it was really? How, yeah. well, what's your thinking about it, anyway? Savior, wherewith shall it be salted? I really want to look at I mean, it's about losing something, losing something of the numinous, losing your spirit, that it can mm-hmm. be lost. Um, and if it is lost, it's, it's hard to know where to go to, to get it back or to rejuvenate it. But I, um, I'd, l- l- let me take a look at the context and get back. What, I don't I, what I'd like
0: to, to say me. is we should definitely do a session on salt. Which has come up before? It came up in mm-hmm. our health session. Oh, with um, with life. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, that's all. I, that's all I got. But I actually there has got to
1: be great uh, literary uh, texts that use uh, discuss salt too. Yeah, Preserved you. Salt is the thing that the, uh, salt is the part of you that preserves your spirit, your soul, your essence. Hmm. The salt of the earth, is he using it in the sense that uh, people say, oh, he's a real salt of the earth, like like an ordinary, normal, working-class guy? Or he's saying that the Christians are like the salt that, that's sprinkled over the earth that makes it taste good? No, right, it's just, like you know, the quotation is dropped in on its own. Um.
0: In terms of this as a blues mm-hmm. song text, say... Often, you know, with Blue's song, man, it's like you've lost your woman. Um, And I believe mm. that, you know, we've identified that when he writes, you know, in this one line, set off with a dash, and cracked like an old plate as soon as I heard the news, namely the news of Zelda's condition, and that he he had lost her, that she wasn't coming back, and he Mm. wasn't coming back, etc., so it's about the loss of his, uh, of his woman. And then look at the
1: next paragraph. He says, that is the real end of this story. What was to be done after it will have to rest in what used to be called the womb of time. <laughs> the womb of time. I hate to be like, whatever, 100% Freudian. But he's like, he's lo- lost his woman. And he says, you know, the rest of the story will be found in the womb of time which is like the ultimate female symbol, you know? It's like that's that's what he lost is that womb that, you know, that nourishes the infant that is the man. Right. <laughs> Hence feeling like a, a little boy left alone in the big house, right? Mm. The absence of this womb,
0: Which kind of, for me, leads into what I really want to say and that I kind of am now seeing out of our discussion really in that i mean i think one way of i thought well let me lead off this way i thought um at the end of that paragraph that starts now the standard cure for one who is sunk is to consider those in actual destitution or physical suffering Mm -hmm. at the end of that paragraph there this a series of phrases that I I found very um, interesting relative Mm. to the composition of this whole thing. One is waiting for the fade-out of a single sorrow, also Mm. jazzy, but rather being an unwilling witness of an execution, the disintegration of one's own personality. Mm. And that part of who Fitzgerald was, that had been totally inured, um, annealed to this woman, (laughs) Zelda. Mm. Yeah, and then it caused a supporting wall of his personality structure to crumble. Mm. Mm. And I also Mm. think that phrase is interesting because it takes up Poe, um, Edgar Allan Poe's proposition of the end of literature being when somebody was able to you know, return a text of what it was to die. You know, this, that journey from life to death. Oh, now. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me like this is a far more um, plausible possibility to narrate the disintegration of one's own personality. That seems like that there are lots of novels that that is the theme. Am I correct?
1: Hmm. I guess. Yeah. Well, a lot. I mean that that brings to mind that he has a part in here that I can't find where he's talking about um, the death of the novel. On some level, his whole problem is that he's a novelist and he's starting to think novels are are useless. You know, there, there's no reason to have novels. No one really reads anymore, and if they do, uh, they don't read very closely. And if and besides, the movies are going to replace the novel. And then, you know, of course, his last novel is is sort of an attempt to, like, look that in the face and say, I'm going to write a novel about how movies are made. And, uh, because that's all that really matters now is, uh, is movies. And this is, what, 1936, right? Because 1939 is the year that, uh, Supposedly, the high point of American movies—that's the year of uh, uh, *Gone with the Wind* and uh, *Wizard of Oz*. Supposedly, that's so. He's writing during a period, you know, uh, like right now. It seems like movies are sort of—I mean, they're sort of literally and metaphorically dead. You know, like they can't make them anymore because mm-hmm. of COVID, yeah. and and nobody really I needs them, really need them anymore. Everybody just wants to watch uh, TV shows. You know, um. There's this French philosopher by the last name of Deleuze. Oh, yeah. Gilles Deleuze. Philitos. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I believe, I believe that he put the crack up forward as, um, an example of Freud's death drive. What it, what it, what it looked like in its human shape or what it could look like in terms of this, um, instinct of desire to dismantle oneself or to, to die, to, mm-hmm. to self-destruct. It, John refers to it as self-immolation. Yeah, I just turned to that line. My self-immolation was something sodden dark. Sodden, S-O-D-D-E-N hyphen dark. It's a great line. My self-immolation was something sodden dark.
0: It also brings one. back William Styron's Darkness Visible, uh, which is a oh, quote yeah. you know, from John Milton from Paradise Lost. Oh, right. and Which reminds
1: me also... Was was it you, Andrew, who said the only quote he had from literature was from Matthew? Because right before that is when he quotes Wordsworth. When Wordsworth decided that there hath passed away a glory from the earth, he felt no compulsion to pass away with it. So, uh, yeah, that's the other quote that I see from literature. Yeah, I know in the Inferno, the earth is described as a sodden mess. Did you mention the Inferno? Yeah. I was talking about the three-part I think Dante structure the is lurking on the margins of this essay. Well, darkness oh, yeah, visible
0: is a is a description of hell. Huh. Right, right.
1: There was some professor that I was that I was briefly friends with, uh, who was uh, he was an old guy who taught at the University of Buffalo, and his I think the thing he wrote or invented was the idea of two people simultaneously reading aloud two separate texts so that you had to listen to them to these two texts together and they became somewhat unintelligible that was kind of his day yeah. and I mentioned to him that I was obsessed with Dante and he said yeah Dante uh, keeps reappearing you know Dante's influence never never dies and you know he was an old guy and he'd seen various what's the word you know uh, fashions in literature but he was struck by the
0: I'm trying to find a way, I'm trying to find a quotation from the essay that will allow me to say what I feel I wanted to say arising from our talk. And that is that if... Um, If his separation from Zelda, if being with her and not with her, watching her disappear into the structure of Highland Hospital, and that underlying it is this disintegration of the personality, that disintegration is, could be said, triggered by his divorce from femininity, Sparrow, to return to sort of in part kind of a homosexual verve maybe, but just a sense of our own femininity, he had projected that onto Zelda. And so that when she's gone, mm. that aspect of his personality, mm. that supporting structure is gone. That it's his... Or and then, his
1: sense of his own masculinity is dependent on her femininity and once she's not there to kind of reassure him that he's really a man and not a woman or some I, I think ma- amalgam that, of man and woman kinda kind of, of collapses.
0: Yeah. I mean I think that kind of binary thing is possible, but it's also that I'm not masculine, Sparrow. You know, like I'm I'm feminine and masculine. I may have a you know, superficially a male gaze or a male animation. My femininity is very much what I um, holds me together.
1: You you're talking about yourself.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think anybody the with you. any uh, with a decently developed psyche that, that it would be true that there's a balance of yin yang. Yeah, that, that pushed me. Of course, you. you know,
1: back in 1936, not too many people thought like that. And in fact, the story I was going to tell that to me was kind of the most essential story. It's like a very famous story where. Fitzgerald asks, uh, you know, uh, Hemingway to show him his genitalia, and the two of them are comparing who has the larger, uh, you know, appendage. And, you know, that sort of says something about who these guys were. It says a lot I've of There's something kind of homosexual about it while they're in this supposedly heterosexist battle over who's got the bigger appendage. I had never heard that story. I think it's a famous story. I may have possibly invented it, but I'm pretty sure. I once read this book called something like the Oxford Book of American Literary Anecdotes. And, like, the first half of it is all these, like, um, uh, witty people in the 19th century saying uh, witty things, you know, Henry James Anecdotes. And then the second half of it, once you hit the 20th century, is basically all stories of alcoholism. (laughs) And, you know, this is kind of the, you know... In a nutshell, this is what happened to American literature. It
0: became kind of saturated with the uh, you know, whiskey. I would totally also agree with that. And I think that there's a way in which we're eliciting a lot of information and interesting angles from the crack-up. But it does have at the edge of it the dilemmas of alcoholism, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I see it on a rhetorical
1: level as well. Um, he mentions, I think, at the beginning of the second essay, the second part, that his editor, maybe the editor of Esquire, uh, objected to the uh, aspects of the, the first essay, that he was bringing up too much without going into anything uh, in detail, that there were too many aspects brought up. And that reminded me of a drunk. That reminded me of the sort of patter of language the scattershot of language that could come out of one of my drunk Irish uncles or the kind of telegraphic, uh, uh, compression, you know, it's like somebody will say something like, yeah, it was like the battle of the bulge, uh, long. And you know what I mean? You know, like, yes. like, like kind of allusions without explanation. Right. And but then um, a quick skip to another topic, another illusion, um, Bizarre juxtapositions, non sequiturs, but a steady stream of language nonetheless. Hmm. And is that a good start for the Mm blues song? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there are these kind of uh, what's the word? uh, Leaps of logic, I think. You know, Sam, where do you sense the alcoholism in the words here?
0: well, in, in some sense, you know, you had provided the key to this essay that was missing. You know, like I said, I had this question mark and cracked like an old plate as soon as I heard the news. I didn't connect it with Zelda's diagnosis. And so mm. I think I maybe had it a little bit more alcohol sodden than, um, you know, than Bear's scrutiny. We just know that Fitzgerald was a heavy drinker, you know, a heavy and compulsive drinker. You know, that's, um, you know, that's the, what alcoholics do, right? He died at 44. Alcohol-related breakdown. Yeah. And my uh,
1: mentor, you know, Ted Berrigan, who was a speed freak, died at 48. And, uh, and for a while, I kind of believed that everyone who abuses their body will die at around 48 or 49 it seemed to be sort of a pattern and you know and then when i read that he writes early in this essay up to 49 it'll be all right uh, i thought wow he was right on uh, my uh, theoretical schedule too
0: so i think i found it see my take is that if one can read in, in part into this essay even within its Thanitos, you know, love of death, uh, which I'm not sure about, per se. But if it does constitute a articulation of a person who's become divorced from their femininity, um, then it leads to this. That is at the start of what I call his sort of the the birth of the Senate, um, you know, which closes mm-hmm. out the song. And that is, it's the paragraph that starts, this led me to the idea that the ones who had survived had made some sort of clean break. Yeah, this is a big word and is no parallel to a jailbreak when one is probably headed for a new jail or will be forced back to the old one. The famous escape, or run away from it all, is an excursion in a trap, even if the trap includes the South Seas, which are only for those who want to paint them, or sail them. And then what is the nature of his clean break? It is the adoption of a new personality, personality of a cynic. And, finally though, and gracefully, this idea of the smile, um, the lack of oh, yeah, yeah, Stoicism, yeah. which has enabled the American Negro to endure. Wow, that's um, well,
1: that's, you that, read it, reminds me of a Greek mask,
0: an ancient Greek mask. Right. What, what idea, that's really what it is, is that oh, yeah, very this is a mask, he's building himself a mask. Hmm. Totally true. The whole
1: essay is, yeah, the whole essay is building that mask, he's the craftsman, hmm. putting it together, it's like, hmm.
0: Yeah, that, that, I think, is the key insight. And, you know, my take is that being divorced from the feminine causes a person to develop a mask and then kind of nothing behind it, a kind of emptiness, an empty gaze behind it or something of that nature. And next
1: to that paragraph you just quoted, at least in my version, is the photograph of F. Scott Fitzgerald, in a suit, his hands in his pockets, with a tie, striped tie, and his face looks rather mask-like. You know, it's this kind of affable smile that looks, you know, extremely fake, particularly when you read this essay. It really does. I'm looking at that photo right now from Getty Images. I also wanted to quote from that, uh, that paragraph because, you know, I just feel we have to discuss this today because today is the day that um, a mob of people burst into the U.S. Senate uh, attempting to disrupt the government. The first time it's ever happened in our history. What is it, 240 years, something like that? And, you know, it's like there is some kind of massive crack-up going on in our country. And I was reminded of a couple of phrases from this essay. One of them was, uh, in this silence... There was a vast irresponsibility toward every obligation. And then another phrase uh, that comes um, in the paragraph next to that photo of him, he says, "Uh, But I would cease any attempts to be a person, to be kind, just, or generous. There's there's a point where he just sort of gives up on the whole social contract. He's not going to be... a responsible, normal citizen. He's had enough. He's, he's 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 sort of dropping out of of the of the social bond. That's it. You no, I like, was just going to say.
0: Here's words. another good quote um, to add to what you've read um, is, and this is the paragraph part of the last. This is what I think now that the natural state of the sentient adult is a qualified unhappiness. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, this thing that's hap- that happened today in Washington, D.C., it does seem like some kind of deeply unhappy tantrum, maybe a little cruel to, to call it that, but some kind of acting out, some kind of gesture, almost a collective gesture of, uh, you know, giving up, in a way. Like, the hell with the whole thing! I'm just going to smash it all to pieces. Dig it,
0: and I I've think cracked Fitzgerald, up. And I don't I think, care anymore. Yeah, I think Fitzgerald fits in with that, and with that theme of Thanatos, because what I saw is a lot of white men clamoring yeah. up on the Capitol, and in concert with the president, who is interested in. Smashing things, like everything he touches um, breaks and fails and, you know, his career has been one of very destructive, Mm. you know, and then the Republican Party has cloned itself to this figure and that it all Mm. has to do with this demographic, which is the suicidal white male, you know, who
1: feels kind of hopeless.
0: It's it's like in the Great
1: Gatsby. No, right? a, it, Andrew, a, you're the scholar of it. When uh, isn't there some guy, some weirdo, is telling somebody Tom Buchanan, right? He's saying the white race is doomed. We're we're about to be destroyed by uh, the uh, the Negroes yeah, or something. He's referencing like that. a book by written by a psychologist uh, eugenicist named him, Goddard, who who um, came up with the uh, policies that weeded out "quote unquote." Interiors on Ellis Island. Yeah, and he's saying, you know, it's like this panic about the white race. I mean, that seems to be part of what's going on today in in Washington, D.C. These white guys who are just, they realize demographically that the Republican Party is doomed. You know, if enough black people, Latinos, Latinx, Jews uh, vote, and young people vote, they'll never win again. So they're, you know, yeah. they're, they're, their game is up, you know, well, they, their the, dominance
0: is over. Yeah, I think the Republican Party's committing suicide. I mean, you know, I, I see them as dead meat, um, you know, going forward. I believe this is, um, you know, this is called what's jumping the shark, I believe. What does and that it's mean? A jumping the shark, I, I think there was a TV show in the 70s with the Fawns. It was called Happy Days. And and I believe in one of the last episodes, the Fonz, they're in Florida. He's on water (laughs) skis, and he jumps over a shark. They put a shark in the water. That's the origin
1: of the phrase, jumping a shark?
0: Yes, sir. And I Ah. believe that's what the Republicans may have done. Um, It's also, you know, connected with OxyContin, the suicidal Mm -hmm. white male who, you know, exists throughout Mm. this country you know, and is tracked through this um, epidemic of opioid death.
1: Yeah, the white man's problem. Yeah. And and uh, and I think we have to discuss the parallels between uh, uh, Donald Trump and the Great Gatsby. I mean, they really, you know, I mean, Trump, you know, maybe because he's a guy who's never read a book, he's uh, condemned to relive the story of, Of Gatsby, who's this self-made millionaire, kind of a quasi criminal, or maybe completely a criminal, I guess, a bootlegger, Um, and uh, he becomes a great success, but there's something hollow and fake about his success, sort of fraudulent. And then you know he's ends up. I hate to ruin the story if you've never read it, but you know it's it's a tragic story, a tragic story of an American self-made millionaire who, uh, you know it turns out to have kind of no soul and uh, you know I think that Trump is is kind of grasping after that same yeah you know, what's the word ineffable you know gratification that that, that uh, you know which for Gatsby was personified by by Daisy but really it was something beyond that it was some kind of legitimacy or or satisfaction that he could never re- achieve and he sort of brought down the whole world around him with him you know like a like a greek tragedy and these parties these wild parties are kind of like these wild rallies gatsby would throw these you know exciting thrilling parties and then you know trump gives these rallies where he dances to the song macho man by the village people he's like importing to America the kind of disco culture that was his high point in the 80s, and that kind of is a direct descendant of the jazz-era parties that Gatsby gave. <laughs> I mean, there's those parties at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, good point. Um, each, right? Like Gatsby's mansion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not capable even of the level of what's the word, exteriorization of relationship that, that really cares about a woman as much as Gatsby did. I mean, in a way, that's kind of the salvation of Gatsby, is that he kind of has this real romantic love for Daisy, even if the Daisy that he loves is something of a fabrication of his mind. You know, but I, I don't think Trump is even capable of that level of uh, yeah. concern for another person.
0: Gatsby is almost a more interesting character than Trump. Hmm. It's possible, yeah. And I'm not sure. I uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The one thing I wanted to ask Andrew, yeah, is uh, relative to Ricard, who believed that the oh, integrating oh, oh. yourself with the story of your life is a sign of health, of mental health, right? The
1: discordant concordance.
0: Yeah, I I was struck by the third paragraph as it might have related to that. In terms of of, uh, Gatsby, of (laughs) Gerald's relationship to his own past.
1: Well, yeah, I was struck by that too. Um, You know, Sparrow had mentioned the the two previous crack ups of when he was, what, in college and had tuberculosis and had to leave and return and had been forgotten, passed over. Then the second was what? Having to do with not being deployed? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that he didn't go off to fight in the war. I mean, maybe he was, it says, at not getting overseas during the war. So maybe he was in the army but didn't go overseas. I'm not sure. <clears throat> There's another memory from a youth in Minnesota where he recalls um, lusting after women who lacked means, Scandin- young Scandinavian girls. But my point is that you see him trying to piece together a new autobiography. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh A new story of life, based upon where he is in the present. He's looking back and he's trying to shore up those pieces against his ruin. To paraphrase from Eliot. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And doing lists is something you would do if you were in that kind of reconstitutive hmm. stage or state or process,
1: right? Recalibrating. What your narrative is, and it's going to change. So you see him trying to, um, I, I guess, um, c- you know, compose this discordant concordance, but it doesn't quite it doesn't quite hold. everything mm-hmm. it's, it's it's information. It's, it's there. These are my previous crackups, but this one was was much worse. This one I couldn't resolve. I couldn't
0: resolve. Right. That is the commitment of Zelda to a mental hospital. Apparently, I mean,
1: you're saying that. It's not clear in this essay.
0: Really. I believe that it's what? crystal clear. I believe that Andrew, you know, nailed it. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it all sort of fits together, um, you know, if that's the understanding. I, maybe we're wrong. Gosh, I hope that's correct. I think it is. Yeah. The one thing I would point out is in this third paragraph where he talks about the 20s past with my own 20s marching a little ahead of them and then he talks about these little regrets and then he writes the big problems of life seemed to solve themselves and if the business of fixing them was difficult it made one too tired to think of more general problems and i, I was just wondering what your thoughts are that you know on what more general problems might be <laughs> I thought he was referring there to the larger existential
1: problems, um, maybe some of which participated in the final crack-up that he was able to avoid up to the point of 39, up to the point of Zelda's breakdown. Uh-huh. Like the fact that everything that lives is going to die, that rum, the rock lost in space, and we don't know why. <laughs> Right. Yeah, what you know, Why was I even born? What happens after death? All of these um ge- these crises, these, these these questions that that can be experienced as a crisis with great difficulty. Uh-huh. This, that he was privileged. That he didn't really have to think about those things. You know, his focus was in more local problems, or you know, even slightly challenging ones, like a novel, or It was just uh shielded him in some ways. I mean, I see him also as, like, a victim of early success. You know, like, a guy who kind of starts out, starts writing, and immediately is successful, they really, such a person does not have much time to think in their life about anything except their career, you know. It's an unusual problem, but, you know, kind of a serious problem.
0: If it were that way, then the avoidance of dealing with these more general problems you know these existential problems um you know may have left him vulnerable to cracking up when his wife was committed but then i'm also sort of more thinking that it may be practical that the more general things may be like observing that the eccentricities of his wife may be related to a mental problem Right, or that hmm. you know, drinking a lot was causing certain shifts in you know one's thinking processes, or you know, feeling processes, or you know, ways of life that were detrimental. Maybe
1: it seems like there were problems there all along. You know, there's a, a weird uh, paragraph where he says the other episode parallel to my current situation took place after the war, when I had again overextended my flank. It was one of those tragic loves doomed for lack of money. And one day the girl closed it out on the basis of common sense. During a long summer of despair, I wrote a novel instead of letters. So it came out all right, but it came out all right for a different reason. I think he's looking back at his life, and he's suddenly seeing... There were all these, what's the word fault lines, you might say, that were there that he never quite addressed, and that suddenly all merged. <laughs> like all the fault lines I'm thinking of like a literal metaphor. They all kind of uh, kind of connected up in, in, in a big uh, earthquake, it, which, is, which is precisely how a plate cracks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If there's one um, fault line, the other mm. fault lines appear. Like the um, spider vein. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, yeah, I-, I think that was my biggest surprise. No. I was going to talk about this originally. Like my biggest surprise, that I've heard of this essay for years, maybe, you know, much of my life, but I'd never read it. And I always assumed the crackup was a car crash. Oh. And then it turned out it's, it's a plate. And that really is very different. You know the, And he continues this plate metaphor, which I love, uh, even in the title, where part two, pasting right. it together. Right. And well, part yeah. three is what? Handle it with care. Like, uh, when you have a plate, you know, back in the old days, I don't think people do this anymore, you would glue together a plate and then you would still use it, you know, uh, and you'd have to be very gentle with it. You could easily re-break.
0: And also that the broken plate, is a common object. Yes. And it the, you know, people all around us in our life who've cracked up.
1: But also the way he sees himself as a plate. You know, like, he's a guy who serves up these stories. He serves up these novels and stories that we eat off of, you know, his plate. He's the plate off of which we eat. And, you know, you don't think much about the plate. You think about what you're eating, not the plate. I mean, it's a very
0: strange, you know,
1: humiliating or at least humble sense of oneself to be just merely a plate.
0: Yeah, that is fantastic. Is there a line reference on that? Or did you deliver that into the essay, Sparrow? Well, I mean, well, I'm, that's my The metaphor of the plate as the author. Yeah, that's an interpretation, but it's an interesting one for sure. Well, I mean...
1: The, you know, if you look at part two, pasting it together, in a previous art, this is how it begins. In a previous article, this writer told about his realization that what he had before him was not the dish that he had ordered for his 40s, which is my thesis, right, that it's not fitting his uh, his the script he'd written for his life. In fact, since he and the dish were one, described himself as a cracked plate the kind that one wonders whether it is worth preserving. And then he goes on, he says, Sometimes, though, the cracked plate has to be retained in the pantry, has to be kept in service as a household necessity. It can never again be warmed on the stove, nor shuffled with the other plates in the dishpan. It will not be brought out for company, but it will do to hold crackers late at night or to go into the icebox under leftovers. Hence this sequel, A Cracked Plate's Further History. So he is saying, you know, I I mean, it's not, it's me saying, well, he's uh, serving up these stories for us or this essay for us, but he is saying he's a cracked plate, (laughs) that he's merely a plate. In fact, now he's less useful, you know, can only be used late at night uh, to eat crackers on or to go... Wonderful, archaic phrase to go into the icebox under leftovers. It's
0: a lot of struggle lyrically expressed.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I just noticed this note I made, which might be a kind of ending. So maybe I'll say that.
0: Okay.
1: You ready? Yeah. Uh, Fitzgerald was a happy-go-lucky, good-looking guy who wrote Tragic Tales. It was only a matter of time before the tragedy leapt off the page and covered him.
0: Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.